You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. In Philippians 2 this week, we finished up chapter 1 last week. Um, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Uh, I know... Uh, having your actual paper Bible open in front of you with all this wind might feel a bit crazy. So uh, please feel free to use your devices or however you can get to a Bible. Uh, We'll obviously have the uh, um, words on the screen over here too, but I know they're a bit hard to see. So thanks for bearing with us. Um, But I am excited to uh, be in Philippians chapter 2. Those of you that were with us uh, last Sunday... You might remember that I kind of asked a single question uh, all throughout the sermon last week. Uh, that question was simply this. Well, what's going to be the, um, your reputation? What, what, what are the history books going to say about you in 10 years, right? Uh, what, what will the history books say about Christians in uh, America in the next 10 years? A um, little bit broader application of that question. I ask that question because I believe it's a really important question to ask, right? Why? It's an important question to ask because it kind of gets after the manner of life that we lead, uh, the lifestyles that we live. I also believe it's the question that the Apostle Paul is implicitly asking in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. Remember what he said. He said, only let your manner of life, insert as citizens of heaven in the original Greek, let your manner of life as citizens of heaven be worthy of. What does that mean? Marked by. So worthy of, marked by what? The gospel. So I believe that the best opportunity for us um, to assess our manner of life uh, is in the midst of difficult times, trying times. Because in the midst of difficult times, trying times, that's when we get squeezed, right? You might say squeezed by the horrors of life causes a reaction from deep within you. I referenced some of this last week. The reality for me as a preacher is I have a job as I preach the gospel, right? I don't preach the Bible or preach the gospel into a context where things aren't happening. There's things happening in our world right now. Big things, things that we all feel passionate about. And honestly, we're living in unprecedented times, right? So 2020 is a presidential election year. Um, We just had a worldwide pandemic sweep through our nation. Uh, Lives have been brutally taken in front of our eyes on TV. Uh, Protests. Riots filled the streets of many cities across our nation. Uh, Businesses have been crushed. Uh, Racial tensions are super thick right now, so thick that you can cut it with a knife. I believe that these events are marking us. So catch that. I believe what's happening right now in our nation, in our lives, in this season, marking us emotionally marking us relationally, marking us spiritually. It's, it's marking the, the makeup of the society that we live in. It's making change. 
As I listened uh, to other people over the past week, I heard things. I don't know how many of you heard things as you listened. As I listened, I heard deep emotions um, being expressed by people over the events of the last five months, especially over the last two weeks. Some pretty passionate emotions and opinions. Some people are somewhat oblivious. Others, very angry. Some people are sad. Other people are frightened. Some people are confused. Other people are deeply wounded and hurt. Some people are skeptical. Other people are just ready to fight. Right? The reality is this, uh, a traumatic experiences leave their marks on us for better or for worse. So when I think about this, uh, 37 years ago, that's 37 years ago, it seems like a long time to me, I woke up to learn that my dad had left our family. That marked me. It marked me in ways that I still wrestle with today. Uh, 20 years ago, I was riding my motorcycle. Uh, I pulled out in front of me, I was going 50 miles an hour. Imagine that marked me, right? Marked my body for sure. Marked me spiritually. Marked me relationally. Marked me emotionally. I imagine if you face any kind of trauma, if you're here and you're human, then you've probably faced trauma. You've probably faced difficult things, hardship in your life. And in that case, you know what I'm talking about in terms of being marked by those experiences. Something happens, and you immediately go back to that moment where you felt that. And oftentimes our emotions can control us in those moments, right? We all know what that's like. The same is true of the times that we're living in right now. Believe. I believe the times we're living in right now will mark us. Same is true of the Philippian church that we're studying about as well. There's things that marked them. Uh, Their beloved pastor, right? The Apostle Paul. Where's he at? He had planted the Philippian church 12 years ago. He's now locked up in jail preaching the gospel because the people who should have been his friends decided to turn on him. Don't forget the Roman culture that uh, the Philippian church was planted in. The Roman culture within the city of Philippi is largely what scholars call Hellenistic. That's a big word that most of us aren't going to remember and doesn't matter much anyways. But the idea behind Hellenism is this idea that the citizens within Philippi would have enjoyed a certain kind of a quote-unquote freedom of religion so long as your religion doesn't step on my toes. Similar to what we may experience in portions of our culture here. So Christians in Philippi, similar to us today, did not occupy the center of influence in their culture. That's something that's hard for us in America, that we don't occupy that center of influence and power like we once did. They didn't in Philippi. Uh, To be a Christian in Philippi would be to be an outcast or a weirdo, Um, Somebody who was an overlooked member of society. And Paul knows knows the trauma and the difficulty 
that the Philippians are experiencing at that moment has power. And it has power to shape their hearts, to mark them in ways that are either contrary to the gospel on one hand or worthy of the gospel on the other. So his concern is that there are already these tiny little shreds of evidence in the Philippian church, that they're being marked in ways that are actually contrary to the gospel. So what are those ways? What are those tiny shreds of evidence that were beginning to mark the Philippian church that were contrary to the message of the gospel? What is Paul's main concerns for the Philippian church? Um, A short treetop survey of this letter. I've been saying it every week. From the first time, from the first message in Philippians, I've been doing this summary every week. So if you've missed it, you have an opportunity to catch it. A short treetop survey of the letter of Philippians reveals that Paul is concerned with some major issues. Those issues are self-centeredness, pride, complaining, arguing, disagreements, and division. I just want you to stop. Think about the amount of time you spent just looking at social media this week. Wouldn't it be easy to agree that our social media feeds are blowing up with these things? Right? Self-centeredness, pride, complaining, arguing, disagreements, and division. The proof of that is Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, and 14 through 15, chapter 4 and 2 through 3. And the only reason I mention that is so that you know that it is there. If you go and you look at it, you test it out. Don't just take my word for it, right? But go look. Find it for yourself. Let God speak to you through that. So those are the issues the Apostle Paul is trying to address all throughout his letter. Paul knows those issues are there. Paul knows that the Philippian church is becoming marked by these behaviors. Yet he does not lose heart. Why? He doesn't lose heart because he's convinced that the heart is the heart of the issue. And he knows that the only vaccination for the sin infection that he sees in the culture of the Philippian church is the centrality of the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. It's the only answer. It's the only pill. It's the only thing that's going to make things better. Paul firmly believes that the Philippian church needs to do three things. How can you track in chapter 2 and chapter 4 those six things that I listed? He gives a pill for each of those. A pill for two each time. The first pill is to put on the mind of Christ. The second pill is to work out your own salvation in Christ, which means get your eyes off Jesus' walk. Kind of like if you raise kids, you know what it's like when you're trying to disciple a kid, right? And you're trying to teach that kid how to walk right, and they're always like, but my brother did. No, 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 no. Deal with yourself. That's what Paul's saying there, okay? So put on the mind of Christ. Focus on working out your own salvation in Christ. And finally, number three, Stand firm in the joy of Christ. And I can give you the proof text. It's there. We're going to continue to walk through it every week until we're done with the book. So Paul, Paul knows. He knows that the only remedy for the brokenness and the trauma that we experience in this life, the only answer is what? Christ. Jesus is the only answer. 
The only way that our lives are going to be lived in a manner that is worthy of, marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ as citizens of heaven, is to orient our lives around the crucified, risen, and returning Christ. So, this is what Paul is getting after in our text for today. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, look at what he says. He says, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So this is the word of the Lord to us today. I want to pray before I preach more. Would you bow with me? Father, I'm thankful for this letter to the Philippians, but I'm thankful that you, in your kindness, saw fit to preserve your word, that we might read it today, that we might learn from it today, and not only learn from it, but be challenged by it, be rebuked by it, be encouraged by it, be healed by it. So Father, I pray that you would come and do all of that and more. I pray that you would impress on us what it means to live in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, to have lifestyles that are filled with the presence of Christ-like character. Pray, God, that you would come through the preaching of your word, that you would mark us by the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I read this passage, I couldn't help but to notice that Paul is saying here that we are to do nothing from selfish conceit. Verse 3, right? We're not to be known for self-centeredness or pride. My reputation, the visible story of my character, it should be known. It should be marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now the question is, I hope you're asking this already, what does that mean? What does it actually look like to be marked by the gospel? How will I know if my life is marked by the gospel of Jesus Christ? The first thing I see in the text is that my life must be marked by Christ-like motivations. My life must be marked by Christ-like motivations. Think about your motivations for a minute. What motivates you to do something? You could say, think about your reactions. Be similar. Motivations are basically these tiny little elusive little things that constantly kind of run wild under the surface of my heart, right? Those motivations um, just constantly churn away, kind of like these little computer programs, uh, invisibly churning away under that surface. Now, here's the thing if you own a computer, you know what this is like. It's easy to notice when that computer program begins to run poorly, right? How do you know? You know because the computer itself slows down and it produces inefficiently and ineffectively, right? You start getting all these weird little pop-ups on you. It's the same with my motivations. It's the same with your motivations. And the thing is, if I don't practice regular maintenance 
checks on my heart. It's really the, the hard drive of my being. And what's going to happen is my life is going to begin to produce bad fruit. The fruit of self-centeredness. The fruit of pride. This is why Paul basically questions in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy in our motivations. See, self-centeredness and pride show up in life in a myriad of different ways, right? Think about your life. They show up in my life in a myriad of different ways, all the way from being short with my wife to angry with my kids to being stuck in these spirals of self-pity or insecurity. Those are primary ways that those two things show up. And they show up in my life when I am disconnected from Jesus. But when my heart is plugged in, when my heart is plugged into Jesus, when I Jesus speak to me on a regular basis, through regular times in the Scriptures, through prayer, by gathering with God's people, then what happens? It's like my hard drive, my heart, then gets plugged into these daily reminders of the encouragement that I have in Christ, the, the comfort that I have in Christ, the love that I have in Christ, the fellowship of the Spirit that I have in Christ, the affection and the sympathy that I have in the cross of Christ. You see, at the end of the day, I am a really broken and sinful person. My good intentions, no matter how much I try to hold on to those good intentions, they oftentimes get mixed with really invisible, bad, or sinful, selfish, self-centered intentions. It's good for me. Good for me to be reminded that I am no longer an outsider in Christ. That because of Christ, I'm no longer an outsider. I'm an insider now. I'm part of the family. His unconditional love extended to me in His sacrifice at the cross. And what's happening is, slowly but surely, God, by the power of the Spirit alive inside of me, is transforming the motivations of my heart to become more like Him, to be encouraged in Christ, to be comforted by the love of Christ, to fellowship or take part in the Spirit of Christ, to feel the affection and the sympathy of the presence of Christ. See, here's questions that I need to constantly ask myself. You might want to ask yourself this question too. Like, am I... Am, am I uh, um, seeking encouragement at the foot of the cross that I should have died on? You recognize, don't you, if you've trusted in Jesus, that you should have died on that cross for your sin. He should not have. So do you find your encouragement at that cross where you should have been nailed? Have I sought comfort anywhere else besides the love of Christ today? Where is my heart seeking intimacy or fellowship right now? Have I brought myself into the presence of the Lord? Is there anything I'm trying to hide from God? Like When was the last time I felt the affection and the sympathy of my Heavenly Father towards me 
as a prodigal son. It's so funny that when we go from being prodigals to the older brother, we find it so easy to fall into that prideful place of the older brother and forget that really at our core, we are prodigals. So my life must be marked by Christ-like motivations. That's only going to happen as I receive encouragement from Jesus, as I receive comfort in the love of Jesus and fellowship with the Spirit of Jesus and affection and sympathy in the presence of Jesus. Now the second thing that we see in our text is that my life must be marked by Christ-like unity. Right? Christ-like unity. Now, uh, unity in this day and age, I think, seems kind of like a fleeting, lofty, philosophical concept sometimes. Especially, um, especially in the times we're living in right now. Unity feels uh, like a fleeting, lofty, philosophical concept um, even in the church, oftentimes. The events of the last five months, especially the events of the last two weeks, have shown us just how hard it is to hold on to unity. So, track with me here. I watched this last week in absolute horror at a number of things. But here's just one that I think might elicit a response in your heart. So I take a risk by mentioning it. But I take risks when I preach. Why? Because I care for you and your heart. So I watched in horror this last week as brothers and sisters in Christ, people who are believers, pastors even, people that I love dearly, they fought it out. They fought it out hard on social media in reaction to I use that word intentionally in reaction to our president's photo op in front of a church building with a Bible in his hand. You probably feel uncomfortable. It's fine. I'll give you my opinion on it. The division over this one single issue was massive. The division over what you should feel and what you should believe on this one episode was unbelievable. Stinking believable. People professing to be Christians, unfriending each other on Facebook, calling each other derogatory names publicly on that one single event. Churches and families have been known to divide over issues that are smaller than this. We know this. We've watched it. We've experienced it. We've experienced the division and brokenness in our own families over things much smaller than that, haven't we? Oftentimes our families are only a representation of the culture we live in, and sadly, The church is oftentimes only a representation of the culture around us rather than being a fresh light. The pressures of the world's value systems will always seek to pull us away from the love of Christ. 
Always. This is why Paul instructs the Philippians to do this. Complete my joy, he says in verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. What Paul is advocating for here is a Christ-like unity. Christ-like unity produces joy. All right? It's, it's single-minded. It's based on the love of Christ. And I say this often. I say that Christ-like unity does not enforce uniformity, but it invites celebration of diversity. Christ-like unity doesn't seek to silence the opposition. It seeks to listen. I'll say that again. Christ-like unity doesn't seek to silence the opposition. It seeks to listen and earn the right to speak truth. We in the church need to hear this message of unity now more than ever. I'm convinced. We are witnessing and experiencing some of the greatest depths of pain in our fractured nation at this time than we've seen in a long time. For some of us, more than we've seen in our lifetime. Listen to me. What the world needs right now is not a church that argues over fine points of theology or fine points of political policy or fine points of social ideology. We don't need a church that does that. That church has existed for long enough. And look at us. The world does not need right now is not a church that weaponizes our versions of truth on secondary matters of importance, things that are secondary to the gospel. Here's what the world, I think, needs right now according to this passage, according to what I see in my study of scriptures. What the world needs right now is a church that has found her hope in the risen Christ alone and is able to maintain a kind of a presence in this broken world and listens without judgment. Number two, comforts without condemnation. Number three, comes alongside casualties and prisoners of spiritual warfare with compassion and love. That's what the world needs right now. This is the love of Christ that unites brokenhearted sinners at the foot of the cross to Welcome the unlovely, to help the downtrodden, to relieve the burdens of the oppressed, to bring peace to the animosity, to bring healing and wholeness to the broken. The message of the gospel was never meant to be a divisive weapon in the hands of people who claim to know the truth. We must, we must continue to ask ourselves whether or not our lives are marked by Christ's love unity that is characterized by the joy and the love and the peace of Christ. The thing that I see in the text is that my life must be marked by Christ-like humility. My life must be marked by Christ-like humility. Now, this is why Paul says in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. So here's the way this breaks down quickly. 
Selfish ambition is self-centeredness. It's self-centeredness that is concerned only with self first. Only with my thoughts first, my feelings first, my opinions first. All of this organized in a way that then gives me a leg up or a sense of superiority as I lend a quote-unquote helping hand. So that's self-centeredness. Conceit. Conceit is simply pride. It's pride that is enamored with or flattered with self. Of the echo chamber in my head that runs unchecked. The self-congratulation that happens when I loudly or even quietly give them the truth. Right? Conceit is concerned with the expression of self at the cost of another's well-being. It's the desire to win the fight, to be right, to exercise my right at the expense of someone else's good. In this prison cell that I've just described, other people, uh, they're just expendable enemies to be conquered in the conquest for my personal gain. So here's the thing, conceit, at the end of the day, is the deadly enemy of compassion and humility. Okay? Conceit. It's the deadly enemy of compassion and humility. If you struggle with compassion, if you struggle with humility, if you struggle to love your enemy, here's what you're really struggling with. You're struggling with something called conceit. You're only worried about yourself. See, humility, on the other hand, <coughs> humility is concerned with being enamored by, flattered with others more than self. Paul, if you look at this text, Paul does not dictate or define who makes the cut to fit into the category of who the others are. But here's the thing. If Jesus is or if Paul is mimicking Jesus and we're to mimic Paul and Jesus, then a reading of any of the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, along with plenty of other scripture, a reading of those gospels would paint a picture of who the others are, okay? The others are outcasts. The others are downtrodden, they're ostracized, they're abused, they're used, they're exploited, they're forgotten, they're poor, they're marginalized, they're unclean, they're second-rate, they're lower class, they're enemies. The bottom line here is that the calling to exhibit Christ-like humility is simply a calling to be concerned with or enamored by or flattered by others more than self. post from one of my friends on Facebook this week was convicting and convincing. I think what he says serves to underscore the point here. Here's what he said. He says, I know that some of you in the Reformed Christian circles are going to give me a hard time, say that I'm compromising, but whatever. Why is it so hard to come alongside the hurting and lament with them? Why do some of us feel the need 
to have to provide some kind of a conditional love instead of unconditional love. It says, you can hold on to your beliefs and still have a tender heart. That's an interesting statement. You can still hold on to your beliefs and have a tender heart. He says, just stop for a moment. Try to do the following. Listen, lament, learn, love. Let me say it again. This is important. Listen, lament, learn, love. Here's what he says. It costs you nothing to do this. It costs you nothing. You don't have to change your views. His final sentence is this. This is important. He says, actually, the only thing that this may cost you is your pride. That's true. It costs me my pride to listen when I really just want to tell you how wrong you are. It's really hard for me to lament when I really just want to point out that I think you got yourself into this. It's really hard for me to learn when I just really am pretty sure I have all the right answers and you got the wrong ones. It's really hard for me to love when I position myself there. Listen, lament, learn, love. In other words, my life must be marked by Christ. It must be marked by Christ-like humility instead of selfish ambition, which is self-centeredness, conceit, which is pride. I've got to ask myself, is my life marked by Christ-like humility? Finally, number four, fourth thing that I see in this text is that my life must be marked by Christ-like servanthood. My life must be marked by Christ-like servanthood. Verse 4, Apostle Paul says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a play on words for you. I think it's kind of interesting to think about the interests of others. What are they like? What do they value? What do they need? What do they want? What kind of trauma have they experienced? What wounds do they have? What do they fear? What makes them uncomfortable? What do they believe? What are they actually trying to say? That would be a great question for a lot of us to ask. What are they actually trying to say? Rather than placing words in people's mouths that were never there in the first place. Or, second to that would be, inserting intentions. No, you didn't mean this. You actually meant this. Oh, so you're the Holy Spirit now. Okay, I get it. That's good. Count me out of the conversation at that point, right? It'd be good if we would ask that question. Hey, what, what were you actually trying to say when you said that? What do they long for? What do they desire? Who, who are they under the surface? How can I serve this person the best right now? How can I love the present version of this person more than the fantasy that I have of who they might be or could be tomorrow. Uh, I think it would be good if we could just take these questions and apply those to our relationships to others so that we could be more others focused and serve them rather than making relationships about my own selfish needs, what I get out of it and what I think and what I want to put on you. The picture of Christ-like servanthood, if you want a picture for it, 
in the Bible. It's in a few different places. Um, one place that it's really explicitly painted is in the story of Jesus taking off his symbolic robe of power. And he's kneeling down in the nitty-gritty on the dirt floor in this really messy place of life. And he's washing the disciples' disgustingly filthy feet. It's a gross story if you think about it. But even that story, even that story lacks a little bit, right? Because it kind of seems easy. Well, that's Jesus' disciples. You kind of expect him to do that with his friends, don't you? Yeah. The story of uh, Jesus healing his enemy's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane after Peter cuts it off because the man was trying to arrest Jesus. That's a pretty extraordinary picture, right? I mean, put it in our terms, here's what happens. Jesus praying in the garden. All these bad guys who should have been good guys come to arrest him for no reason. Jesus' buddy, Peter, basically his lieutenant in control, pulls out his concealed carry weapon, blows the ear off the guys who are trying to arrest Jesus for no good reason. And Jesus says, put your gun away. It's not my way. My way is a way of love. Reaches down, picks up that ear, heals that dude's ear, and then allows him to arrest him. That's a crazy picture of servanthood. I think that we would do well. We would do well to learn from. So, <clears throat> if I'm going to keep the crucified, risen, returning Christ at the center of my manner of life as a citizen of heaven, then, then my life has got to be marked by Christ-like servanthood. What does that mean? It means I'm going to look not only to my own interests, but also the interests of others, especially the interests of my enemies. Why? I said this last week. Your enemies... Republican on that side of the aisle, or the Democrat on that side of the aisle, or the person who believes in racial reconciliation on this side, or the person that thinks that doesn't exist, your enemies, whoever it is for you, they might become family tomorrow by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus and the broken body of Jesus at the cross. So you might keep that in mind as you think about serving others that you have differences with. Conclusion. That's so what we've learned today. We've learned that if we're going to live our lives as citizens of heaven in a manner that is worthy of the gospel, then our lives have got to be marked by Christ-like motivations, Christ-like unity, Christ-like humility, Christ-like servanthood. Why does this matter? Question that we ask every week. How does this passage help? How do these principles help us? Well, what's the big deal with these? I would think that all throughout preaching today, you would have felt the weight of why this is important. But I want to give you one last reason why I think this matters so much. This Christ-like reputation, the one we've been talking about, this Christ-like reputation is the kind of reputation that I believe the Lord desires of anyone who claims to know Jesus. Why? Because it's the kind of reputation that is produced by people who carry their crosses like their Savior did. If I were to 
accuse the American church of something. I would accuse the American church of this. Another word would be indict. If I were to indict the American church, I would indict the American church with making disciples who look more like spectators instead of cross carriers. Because Jesus is very clear. If you want to come and follow me, then pick up your cross and start dying to your selfishness and your sinfulness. I believe it's the kind of reputation the Lord desires of anyone who claims to know Jesus because it's the reputation that is produced by people who carry their crosses like their Savior did. It's the picture of anyone who, going back to those three things I talked about earlier, put on the mind of Christ, focus on your own salvation in Christ, quit getting all caught up in what everybody else is doing, um, stand firm in the joy of Christ, right? The first one of those being put on the mind of Christ. If you're in Christ, you've trusted in Christ, and that's the active daily thing you're doing is continuing to put on that mind, that helmet, you might say, part of our spiritual armor, according to Ephesians. The best picture I can leave you with to uh, paint this picture of what it looks like to put on the mind of Christ is, is really just a plain reading of the text for next week. So let me read it, praying that the Spirit will apply it to your heart. Here's what Paul says. Have this mind among yourselves. Put on the mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Already belongs to you. You trust in Him. So quit sticking it in the closet and letting it collect dirt. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, interesting thing about God, he knows everything. <laughs> he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And here's the thing. That cross belonged to you and me. I've heard people say, what we should start doing at church is handing out crosses for people to walk out of here with and carry home. Not one that you put around your neck. One that weighs a lot. Because Jesus bore the weight of your cross for you. So that you might come to him and trust him with your sin. Here's what I would hope. I would hope that as you've heard this message today, that the Spirit has convicted you of sin. Because if there is no conviction of sin in this message for you, then there is no salvation for you. Because salvation only happens when you recognize, hey, I have sinned on that issue. I, I've missed it. And in that moment, the message is not, now go out and do better and work harder. The message is, Christ died for you. His blood was shed for you. His body was broken for you. And you can receive that grace and mercy and have it wash over you again. So I pray that you've been convicted of sin. But in the midst of that, I pray that that sin turns you back to the picture of the cross that Jesus carried for you and the horror that he faced on your behalf. 
and that you could specifically say, Jesus, I'm coming to you now, and I'm asking you to forgive me once again of this sin and this sin, and I'm thankful for what you did for me on the cross. Please apply your mercy, your grace, your love over my heart. Fill me with your spirit. Help me to walk in the joy of my salvation now, Jesus. These would be ways that you might pray and respond to this as you put on the mind of Christ. You recognize that he served you at that cross so well. And you recognize that like every human being, myself included, that what you've actually done throughout this week has been distracted from the truth of the gospel. That you've tried to find your hope and your satisfaction in politics, building a family, getting in shape, getting a different car, adding things to your collections, the list goes on and on, okay? We try to find our hope and our joy in things that will not last. At the end of the day, the only thing that will last is the love of Christ at the cross. So really what this is, is this opportunity to repent again, right? And just say, Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for what you did at that cross. Encourage my heart. Strengthen me. Remind me that there's nothing in this life that can or should ever take your place. Recognizing that even though we keep coming back to him and saying, man, I freaking blew it again, right? Like, I'm the prodigal kid. <coughs> I pray that's the way this leaves you. And that you would in this moment then receive the forgiveness, receive grace, receive mercy, be strengthened and encouraged and rebuked all at the same time. And then as you do that, you would receive communion. <clears throat> that the reception of communion is the reminder of that blood shed, that body broken, that cross carried for you. So that when you walk out of here, you can be encouraged to carry that cross too. Amen? I want to pray. Father, thank you so much for the message of the gospel. Thank you so much for your work at the cross <coughs> on our behalf. Well, I do sense there are many here this morning that would <coughs> love to serve you well. Or we hear these passages, we hear sermons like this, and we say, man, I, I am self-centered. I am conceited. I am full of pride so often, more often than I ever know. And yet in these moments, we're so reminded of the beauty of what you did at that cross. And it tastes so much better than everything else that we have sought after this week to bring comfort and satisfaction. So God, I pray that you would do a work now in each of our hearts again. Restore places in our hearts that are broken. Reconcile places in our hearts that are hostile to you. Heal places in our hearts that are broken and wounded. Soften places of our hearts that are hard and angry. Give new hearts to some who are here today who have yet to 
begin following you. Maybe you've followed just some stupid Americanized version of what Christianity is. Take away dead hearts and give brand new beating hearts, Father, I pray. Trust you to do that work and more. And together we say we love you, Lord. Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.